This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have three stories. Orlando, Florida by Tao Lin. The Report on You or Someone Very Close, issue number 14 by Christopher Wallace and Sue Ray by Brenda C. Wilson. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts. Orlando, Florida, written by Tao Lin, read by Mark Rushton. Listening time, 6 minutes, 20 seconds. Orlando, Florida, by Tao Lin. Robert was having a garage sale. His wife was in the house, and his sons were out on bikes. Adam saw the garage sale and got out of his car and looked around. He was bored. How much for the house, he said. Robert smiled a little. Twenty dollars, he said. Adam grinned and took out a twenty and held it to Robert. Robert looked at the twenty, took the twenty. Adam stood there grinning. Robert walked forward into his driveway and turned and looked at the house. Twenty dollars more and you get the wife and kids, he said to Adam, half as a joke and half because of something else that he wasn't really sure what. Adam took out the twenty. What's their names, he said. Lindsay, Robert said. Neil and Aaron are the boys. Thank you, Adam said. Robert stood in the driveway looking at Adam. He thought about walking to Michelle's house down the street, and he thought about moving to New York. He thought about getting a small apartment for a while, then moving to New York. He walked into the garage thinking. Adam was looking at Robert. Can you introduce me to them, Adam said. Robert thought about quitting his job at the movie theater and moving to Europe with Michelle. Yeah, he said, going into the house. Let's do that. Adam followed and thought that wherever this was going, he was going to follow it to the end. He was a little bored. They walked in the kitchen, and Lindsay was sitting at the dinner table, drinking water. And now she stood. Hi, she said. Hey, Robert said to Lindsay, and then looked at Adam. Adam, Adam said. I sold Adam the house, Robert said. How much for? Lindsay said to Robert. Twenty, Robert said. Twenty dollars. Adam looked at the swimming pool outside the dining room. He thought about swimming with Lindsay and splashing water at her face. Lindsay grinned. Isn't that low? she said. I have bad news, Robert said. Okay, Lindsay said and picked up her water. I sold you and the kids to Adam, Robert said. Lindsay half as a joke and half because she only liked Robert maybe once a week and then only briefly because she didn't like staying home every day and taking care of the kids and because of something else that she couldn't tell what said well then you should go unless Adam wants you here you should leave Robert looked outside at the swimming pool on the back porch I've been sold Lindsay said and went to Adam and half as a joke but half because she found Adam attractive hugged him hard she felt his bony shoulders and hard posture and liked it. I own you, Adam said and grinned. Robert thought about himself with Michelle tonight watching a movie. Do you want to go swimming, Adam said to Lindsay. Lindsay and Adam held hands and began towards the back porch. I'll be taking the car, Robert said. 
Lindsay turned around and thought about what was happening and stopped thinking about what was happening and smiled a little and said, Bye, Robert. See you, Robert said. Adam thought about the kids and couldn't remember their names. Let's go swimming, he said. Robert watched Adam and Lindsay go to the back porch and then left the house to the garage under the driveway to the street where the car was parked by the mailbox. He took the keys from his pocket and dropped them and picked up the keys. Neil and Aaron came from down the street on bikes, and Robert waved them over. "'What's for dinner?' Neil said. "'Where are you going?' Adam said to his dad, Robert. "'I sold the house to Adam,' Robert said. He stared at his sons. "'I sold you two and your mother to Adam.' "'Who's Adam?' Aaron said. "'A guy,' Robert said. "'A person.' Neil said as a joke, "'Maybe we'll finally do something fun. Baseball.' He looked at his older brother, Aaron. Aaron half as a joke and half as something that he didn't think about, but could feel as a kind of frustration, said, So now you're going to Michelle's house? Going to take her kids canoeing again? Yeah, Robert said. I think I'll do that. He put the key in the lock and turned it and felt the door click open. Neil, half as a joke and half because he was nervous, said, I always wanted to be owned by a man named Adam. Neil looked at his older brother Aaron, who was looking at Robert's hand, taking the key from the lock and holding the keys, then moving the keys to the other hand. Robert opened the car door and looked at Aaron. Aaron looked at the dad. Let's go, Aaron said. Let's go meet our new dad. Robert got in the car, closed the door, and started the car. He watched the sons through the window. They dropped the bikes on the grass in the front yard. Aaron went in the garage, and Neil glanced back at the dad, and Aaron and Neil went in the house. Robert put the car in park and opened the door and stepped out and walked to the bikes. He got on a bike and rode it over the grass in circles, then to the backyard. He saw Adam and Lindsay in the pool, splashing each other. He got off the bike and stood by the bike, then went in the back porch. Okay, he said. Lindsay stopped splashing and looked at Robert. Adam kept splashing, then stopped and looked at Robert. Lindsay, Robert said. Neil and Aaron came from the dining room to the back porch. Adam, Neil said. Adam looked at Neil. Robert was looking at the water in the swimming pool, and the water was blue and moving. Fine, he said, and now he was looking at the creepy crawler, which was making a noise. The end. Tao Lin is the author of You Are a Little Bit Happier Than I Am, October 2006, Action Books, and Bed, Spring 2007, Melville House. His website is Reader of Depressing Books. The Report on You or Someone Very Close, issue number 14, written and read by Christopher Wallace. Listening time, 6 minutes, 15 seconds. The Report on You or Someone Very Close, issue number 14, by Christopher Wallace. My name is James Gruber. My wife and I have sex bi-weekly, every other Saturday morning. If we miss a go, we don't make it up. 
I have 22 sweaters, 10 that I wear to work, and 12 that I've kept too long. My car runs fine. I have a lawnmower that runs pretty well, too. I often pay a guy to mow the yard. He charges me an extra 10 bucks for the use of his mower. It's a riding one, so I can't really blame him. When it rains, water collects at the base of a maple tree in my front yard. The ground is shaped like a bowl there. I'm told this is why there's no grass in that spot, and that if I do nothing to build it up, it will just get worse. From what I can figure, this is probably right. Sex occurs Saturdays around 8 o'clock in the morning. We sleep in on Sundays. Bridget runs a medical supply office, and at first I thought we would always have a fresh stock of band-aids and things like that, but we don't. My father used to bring home shoelaces from the shoe store where he worked. I guess they would sometimes replace the laces in the display models if a lot of people were looking at them. We would get the old laces, one at a time. Of course, we would get shoes, too, but my father still had to pay for those. He just got 20% off. Bridget is taller than I am, and people tell me she is very attractive. I think she is. She washes herself with soaps that cost more than our food, so that's where the emphasis is. I wash myself with whatever she buys me, which is usually something cheap. We had to make cutbacks somewhere, I suppose. I used to just use the soap directly on my body, but when I started living with Bridget, she found this disgusting. I changed my habits, but not for her. I changed because I saw a program on TV about the skin and about how it's constantly dying and falling off and, and how while you don't want to scrub yourself raw, you do want to aid in the shedding of that skin. So now I use a washcloth to aid in the shedding of my skin. We have never talked about kids, though Bridget's mother brings it up. I can't tell from my wife's reaction what she really thinks. She just responds, I'd feel terrible subjecting a child to this. She never explains what this is. In the kitchen there's a chair that no one will sit in, and I often wonder why it is there. Why would we subject someone to that chair? It's not that it's uncomfortable, it's really not, but the chair is not in a place where anyone would need to sit. It's at the end of an island where we do all of our cutting and food preparation. The chair's positioned with its back to the island, facing the blank wall four feet away. I can't remember who placed the chair this way or why, and it has never been moved. That's pretty much my life. All one needs to know, anyway. That, and I once killed a duck. But with my car. It was evening, and the duck was crossing a street. It happened in a neighborhood designed around a little lake. It made a terrible sound, but I also felt it. It kind of jarred the steering wheel a moment, and I know I hit him with the tire because there was a bump after the initial hit. I, I could see him flailing wildly in my mirror, and it really made me sick. I didn't stop. What can you do for an injured duck? All the rest is pretty much like that. Not like the duck incident. That was a lone mishap. I tried to tell Bridget about it, but I was afraid to. I'm not sure whether what I did was a sin or not, but she is pretty good at deciphering that. I hide those things I think might be deemed sinful now. I look down the blouse of the receptionist at work on a regular basis. That's one of them. I eat a whole bag, the movie theater size, of Reese's Pieces twice a week. I don't know if that's a sin, but 
I shouldn't be doing it. I eat Reese's Pieces four times as often as we have sex. Bridget makes my lunches, but she never puts a sweet in them. I sometimes feel bad that she makes my lunch. We both work, and truthfully, she makes more than I do, so that makes her head of the household financially. But she still makes my lunches. I water the plants. I just don't always mow the lawn, and like I said, I've never done anything about that low spot around the maple. I think I bought soil one time, but it got used elsewhere, in places that do not gather water when it rains. I'm not really sure what she means. Just what would we be subjecting a child to exactly? We're a fairly stable couple. I can't recall the last time we had words. Things are pleasant here, mainly. We changed the drapes a few months ago. I don't particularly like the pattern of the material, but I wasn't there to pick it out. Actually, I was mowing the lawn. So I do mow, just not often enough for me to justify spending what I did on the mower. It's red, and the curtains are kind of a salmon color with some Buddhist symbols in brown. I'm pretty sure they're fake, the symbols. You don't see people with curtains made of fabric covered with crucifixes. If the Buddhist symbols really mean something, just what are we accidentally stating? I hope they mean nothing, because we're not religious. I mean, I've always identified some spiritual aspect of myself, but it's difficult to name. And Bridget and I never really speak of religion, except when picking out drapery fabric. That's once more than we have spoken about having kids. Christopher Wallace is a writer, designer, and student at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Currently, he is writing a bio for Bound Off. Sue Ray, written by Brenda C. Wilson, read by Kelly Shriver. Listening time, 13 minutes. Sue Ray by Brenda C. Wilson My mother can rattle on for hours about something Sue Ray said when they took a break from bar-tacking pants pockets. I hold the phone to my ear and trail my fingers through the dust accumulated on the window sill. As the unmarried daughter, my news is eclipsed by stories of engagements, babies, breakups, and breakdowns. Yet I can tell on my siblings, like when we were still kids, hear my mother's stories, and be the Caldwell family historian. Despite our ages, we are the same children from the black-and-white photos, playing hide-and-go-seek on Sundays until dusk. Our roles are captured there in the portrait under the chinaberry tree, a storyteller, a liar, a sad one, and a beautiful one trapped in the sepia light. Sue Ray is leaving her third husband that slaps her around every Friday night. I swear I don't understand young women, says my mother. Really? There is nothing new for me to say about this story. We worked extra hours this week to get a special shipment out. Big old plaid shorts. Five days a week they sit on an assembly line stitching back pockets that come tied in bundles. Bar tacking. She has shown me how they assemble the pockets. A few quick turns where they stitch the actual pocket and then she flips it over and tacks the corners on the top side. They never work on finished pants, just the back pockets. Making production or completing a certain number of bundles per day without rejects 
means that she makes better than minimum wage. Plus, any rejected work is returned by the line inspector, pulled apart, and restitched. Work stories are soft lead-ins to my mother's phone narratives of the week. Sue Ray's pains are not our pains. We can afford to be callous with our judgments. She is not part of our family and white. I am hundreds of miles away, hiding my life behind well-chosen, filtered details and Christmas visits. I work in a windowless, gray office, analyzing real estate loans, sifting through documents, and calculating the repayment ability of the bank's customers. At lunchtime, I wander the streets and stare at men's asses, wondering if my mother bartacked their back pockets, too. I got some scraps to start a new quilt. They had several nice leftover pieces of cloth. Sue Ray, none of these young women bother to try and quilt. My mother's talking about me, too. I have never learned anything remotely domestic. From the open doorway of the prefab metal factory, I have seen the women hunched over their machines, intent on the day's production, with the whirring and humming of the machines filling the building like an orchestrated giant engine. Their movements are like robots, their heads bent down and their arms sawing the air with close movement as they stitch the often unrecognizable parts with demon alacrity, as if their lives depended on the assembly of pants. My mother often brought home scraps of fabric and large paper spools of thread shaped like inverted ice cream cones that would have otherwise been discarded after a production run for special sizes, types, and pants colors. Once in a while, they laughed at the final products at the factory sale. Big and tall sizes are Mr. Glenn's garment plant specialty, 42 by 42 and larger. I've been waiting on your daddy to go get some grocery before the meat is picked over, she says in a sing-song way. Although she has a car, my mother doesn't like to drive herself to the market. She yells into the phone because, for too many years, she has worked in these plants with machinery screaming into vast open rooms without so much as an earplug or a mask from the fabric dust. A union would have made a difference, according to my father, who is 100% United Auto Worker. My father comes home each night with black oil spots on his blue uniform. Samuel is written in blue lettering, encircled by red embroidery on the white patch pocket. Your father is late again, probably at the state line, buying beer instead of coming home first. Did I tell you Sue Ray is getting another divorce? Only once this week, Mom. My mother ignores my sarcasm. Each day at the garment plant, they take two 15-minute breaks, one at 10 o'clock and one at 3 o'clock. Most of the women find a corner in the break room to light a cigarette or eat crackers and chips from the snack machine. My mother thinks that Sue Ray is a foolish woman, yet she insists on sitting at the table with her at break and at lunch. I think my mother is fascinated by Sue Ray's life and the fact that she could change it, but she won't. Sue Ray has been married three times at age 30 with three children, one from each marriage. Many of the young women, black and white, are like Sue Ray. They marry as a form of recreation in the backwater hometown that I escaped. Their lives have not been about college or career choices such as the ones my mother worked towards for my siblings and me. Few people from my high school class have made the break from factory jobs and bad marriages. Bad examples are the only heirloom passed down by the poor people that we know. Harriet Henderson started working here. She left the Vernon plant. Didn't she graduate with one of you? If she was my daughter, I would whoop her ass. Harriet graduated with Sam Jr. I remember Harriet Henderson. My brother had a giant crush on her when we were in high school. She was a homecoming queen. Now she doesn't even have a car or a husband and lives at home with her mama and four little boys. That girl has made a mess of her life, having babies with married men of all things. 
Somebody said that the last boy was fathered by your cousin, Walter. Cousin Walter works at the cotton mill and has a wife and two children. Both my brothers worked in the factories as summer jobs during college. I escaped the factory altogether. Our parents made sure that we could have better lives and sent all of us off to college. She tells Mr. Glenn, the factory owner, about us constantly and reminds him that there is hope for the children of the poor. Where have you been all weekend calling this late? Call Sam. He was asking about you earlier, wondering what a single girl does all weekend. People, including my family, misconstrue being single as being wild and married as being settled, despite what they see and do themselves. I've just been busy, Mom, working. I do not add that I'm looking for another job, that I'm bored out of my mind because my mother will remind me of how many people make less and have had fewer opportunities. I wonder if I had stayed in Alabama, would I have been more like Harriet or Sue Ray? She thinks that I just need to settle down with a man and have a couple of babies like everyone else. Only another single woman can tell you the price of solitude. Only another single woman can recite the litany of bad blind dates that get worse the older you get. Ex-cons, confidence men, and plain, desperate men who just want to be married. As a working woman without children and my own teeth, I am a magnet for such men. My mother's concerns flow in a different direction now that schooling for us has been completed. She ignores my oldest brother Sam's alcohol and drug problem. Sister Val's been married two times and has a baby boy, and I am a corporate vagabond, moving from city to city on a whim, like a dandelion scattered about in a summer breeze. Stephen, the youngest, is secretive and lives the farthest away in New Orleans. My mother says if Stephen's life is illicit and sinful, she would rather not know the details. Mama, I have to tell you something. I thought I heard a car a minute ago. Val was here earlier with the baby. He's just like her. He looks a little like Robert, too, I say. My mother has practically wallpapered the house with the baby's pictures. Valerie's husband, Robert, is a jerk and has left her for another woman. In my mother's opinion, one man is pretty much like another. None of them will do right. My father has two boys outside of marriage that resemble him more than any of us do. We've got a choir anniversary on Sunday. Should be a nice turnout with this nice weather we're having. It should be nice this weekend, I add lamely. My mother knows that I haven't been to church in years, so we don't discuss this. Mom sings in the choir beside Vivian. More than once I have seen them share a hymn book. Occasionally they end up taking communion together, where the blood of Christ is grape Kool-Aid and the body of Christ is represented by saltines. Mama believes that in the end God will mete out the punishment for my father and Vivian. As a family, we are torn apart and asked to forgive sins that we are bound not to discuss. In doing so, we have become a party to my mother's martyrdom, and we are equally broken and damaged. I bought a new white suit for the pastor's anniversary in June. It's double-breasted and has a really long skirt. My mother and the other stewardesses, elder women in the Methodist church, will file through the double doorway in white suits, gloves, and matching hats, like the crowns of angels. Stephen says that he'll be home next weekend with the rest of you. Mama, he won't be coming. The four of us are failures at marriage and relationships in general. Both Val and Sam Jr. are divorced. I have failed in every relationship I've ever had, and our younger brother Stephen has never been married, to our knowledge. I do not speak of relationships with my mother, unlike my siblings. Despite the fact that we are all beyond age 30, 
they keep seeking approval, which will never come. I do not believe my mother has forgiven herself for loving my father when he has disgraced all of us, but especially her. Shame is an odd thing. We have done nothing wrong. Oh, he said he would really try this time, my mother says. I got a phone call from a friend in New Orleans this morning. She thought we knew. Knew what? Stephen was charged this morning for domestic violence against the girl he's been living with. She caught him cheating with her best friend. Eventually, my mother will blame my father. Long ago, I began agreeing with my mother's opinion of men. I have been in therapy. My sister is trying prayer. My brothers are getting high. We are a beautiful family, smiling into the camera, a portrait of success on the surface. But we will never become one of those dysfunctional TV families so notorious for airing their dirty linen in public. Silence. The Caldwell family will remain silent. Well, we know he wouldn't hurt a woman. It's all just a misunderstanding. I wait for my mother to go on. Just like his daddy, she whispers into the phone, although she is home alone. Her contempt has been years in the making. With the house empty of children, she can closely examine her hurt, like a lost treasure in her old age. Are you going down to New Orleans to help him? Mama, I can't help Stephen. He has to help himself. My mother is quiet. She will never admit that Stephen has a problem. So we'll speak of other things, like people who can't be hurt anymore. Things beyond us, like Sue Ray. Sometimes she does not shout into the phone as she picks lint from her work clothes and sneezes at the dust that is trapped in every pore, alongside the hatred she will not acknowledge because of her professed Christianity. The dog has left again. He broke the chain and took off. I wonder if my mother ever thinks she made a mistake staying with my father, if we would have been different had she left, if one of us would have figured out that love wasn't always so one-sided, so painful, a battlefield full of casualties. Were Sue Ray's parents together when she was growing up, I ask? What kind of question is that? I try to envision Sue Ray from high school, but can't quite conjure up a face. I was just asking, did she grow up with both her parents in the same house? I want to know if Sue Ray ever felt love or ever saw the face of love close up, but cannot phrase such a question. Her daddy left them when she was little. I don't think she even knows him, my mother says. What about Harriet? Harriet's daddy was a minister at the Church of God. He would turn over in his grave if he knew what kind of woman she had become. Your brother could have married that girl. As fat as she is, Sam Jr. surely doesn't have any regrets now. I have always known how to make my mother laugh. Sam can't abide fat women. That's your daddy pulling into the driveway. We've got to run and get a little grocery now. Call your brother. I'll talk to your daddy about going down there. Bye. Bye, I say to the dial tone. The last connection has been made for my mother. All of her children have made the weekly calls home. From a distance, I need to hear her stories as much as she needs to tell them. Long after she is hung up, her voice lingers in my head. I envision my mother filling out her days, bar tacking the big men's pants for little over minimum wage, yet knowing her life has purpose. She will pray and carry on. More and more, I am afraid that the day will come when there will be silence on her line and no more chances to know how Sue Ray and the rest of us can stand to go on. The End Brenda C. Wilson is an unpublished novelist. Her short stories have appeared in the Maryland Review, Pride Magazine, and Chicken Bones Online Literary Journal. 
Additionally, she has been a finalist in both Ebony Magazine's Gertrude Johnson Williams Literary Contest and the Reynolds Price Short Fiction Contest. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.